UFOs, Bigfoot, paranormal input. Go ahead now, get mystical. Mystery and magical. UFOs, not typical. Bigfoot, not typical. You ask me why I'm skeptical. I say questions are questionable. Is the truth alien to you? Alien to get my message through. Aliens might message you. Aliens are sliding through. The wild signal we're plotting to. Algorithms they find is true. Typical. Skeptic. Shut Got no time for no petty germs, pandemic, a pandemic turn, horror still in Amityville, Bayonet in Gettysburg, Mothman, TNT, Factory, Red Eyes, Loki, Dogman, howling in the street, I'm typically skeptic of what I see, Voodoo Hoodoo in New Orleans, Thunderbird, Swamp Thing, is it real, I was wondering, typical, skeptic, show, typical, skeptic, show. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Typical Skeptic Podcast. I have a fascinating guest with me. Actually, my guest today really should need no introduction. You, you've probably seen him on Ancient Aliens. If you haven't, you're living under a rock. But who I have with me is Jason Martell. And still, and tonight he's going to be talking about uh, Mars. We're going to be talking about the Anunnaki, the lost cycle of time, um, all, all kinds of stuff. So uh, prepare. Um, a little bit more about my guest, Jason Martell is an entrepreneur and co-founder of numerous successful tech companies. He's also an acclaimed researcher and lecturer on ancient civilization technologies. For over 20 years, these two realms of business and personal passion have served as pillars for Mr. Martell's career. As And while they parallel to each other, they do have one thing in common, a desire to uncover knowledge and foster progress for humankind. Mr. Martel's research has been featured globally on numerous television and radio networks such as the Discovery Channel, Sci-Fi, and BBC. He's lectured around the world and guests on the History Channel, TV show Ancient Aliens for 10 years. Mr. Martel has also authored numerous books on his research, including Knowledge Apocalypse. And his websites are ancientschool.com, xfacts.com, and jasonmartel.com. And I want to give him a big warm welcome to the show. Jason, thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So I guess we could get into this first. I, I don't know much about this, but um, how you wanted to talk about how the new AI enhancement tools show there's strong evidence to support um, structures on Mars. And I'll just preface with this. I had a guest come on my show. She said she was using Google Earth to like uncover stuff. Like, you know, they show you Mars as well. And she thought that she might have uncovered biodomes on Mars. I don't know if your research goes that far into the fringe, but I'm prepared to at least hear interesting stuff. But I just thought I would throw that in because it's, it's, it's a little interesting. Well, you know, there have been glass-like structures. Tubes are basically another term that I've heard them been called um, that look like they could be tunnels of some sort. It's very possible that they could just be a, you know, a natural formation. We don't know. Um, but what I would say to preface the whole Mars topic is this. Uh, when I was in college, someone had mentioned to me just kind of casually, oh, you know, NASA has taken photos of pyramids and a face on the surface of Mars. And I was like, you've you got to be kidding. This is fantastic. Why haven't I heard anything about this? And so when I looked into this, which, again, mind you, was like 25 years ago, um, th there was a lot of basically like resistance to any idea that there could be something on another planet that we'd built or something that aliens had left behind. And so this started to really fascinate me. And, and it turns out that 
the company in charge of putting the cameras on the landers, on the orbiters, uh, was also located in San Diego where I was attending college. It's called Mainland Space Science Systems. So just as a layman college student, I tried several times to get in touch with Dr. Mike Malin, and I finally did. I had a conversation with him through email and asked him, you know, are these structures artificial? Is there any intervention at all? And he said, no, they're all natural, weather eroded, you know, natural processes, no aliens, no humans at all. And that's what I think really made my eye, eyebrows raise even further in curiosity, because then I set out to find five to at least maybe even 10 peer-level review scientists that had the credentials to look at satellite telemetry and analyze whether or not we're seeing artificiality or just natural training. I'll give you an example. One of them that really stood out, his name is Dr. Mark Carlotto. And he wrote a book using what he developed is called a fractal analysis to identify artificial structures. So if you ran his fractal analysis over satellite telemetry, we collected, let's say, from Russia, you know, he'd run it over surface, surface terrain and identify, oh, look, those are troops, a tank, you know, something else artificial that's covered up by shrubbery or a tarp. His fractal analysis would identify them. When he ran his fractal analysis over the Cydonia region of Mars, where face and pyramids are located, all of those objects got like a 98% probability hit of artificiality. So, you know, he did a whole further analysis on their health, how they're three-dimensional. You can see the face from any angle. It's not like a face in the cloud. If you move to an angle, it goes away. No, this is a constructed object that's over 1,500 feet high and over a mile long in length. <clears throat> so NASA never really put enough scrutiny into this uh, discussion. In 1976, I think it was somewhere in that range, when the first image was discovered by Viking, they were transmitting it live. And they label it as, oh, the head. And then, you know, they just said, oh, it was a trick of light and shadow and dismissed it. Several years later, people going through the archives, Vincent DiPietro, Greg Molinar, found other, other positions of the sun and the satellite. And it always still looks like a face. So to me, to, to, to bridge that topic, you know, I've been looking at the face on Mars data for a, quite a long time. Um, but it, it also made me realize instantly, well, wait a minute these structures are on Mars. You know, we have stuff all over our own planet that we still don't know who really built them. That's what really kickstarted my research looking into this topic. And it's expanded obviously into, uh, you know, many different areas. Do you, do you, do you agree with like Sitchin? And I, I think Gerald Clark said this too, that um, that face on Mars could have been Alulim, you know, that that was like the Anu's brother who they, ex who supposedly they exiled at one point and because, and, and then they, they killed him on Mars. Do, do you follow that part of the story or do you, do you believe that to be possible? Anything's possible. I mean, I do think it's interesting that in the Sumerian lexicon of, you know, cuneiform texts and other pictures they've left us, there are references of the planet Mars and some type of a winged disc craft traveling between Mars and earth. And, 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 you know, and so like Sitchin looking at a lot of these texts and theorizing and making the connection, making the glue, if you will, to say these translations, these translations clearly are identifying a specific character. Uh, that's, you know, I think heavy evidence. 
The problem is, is I don't translate cuneiform script myself. Since Sitchin has passed away, these type of topics are a little bit more ambiguous to answer. Uh, unless I hire a linguist like I've done in the past to translate them independently. Um, but yes, I would, without that long-winded answer, yeah, I think there's strong evidence to suggest that this was built as a monument to represent some advanced lost culture or someone who was a part of that race. And the Anunnaki as a term, as we'll discuss a little bit more, I think fit as one of the candidates for this global technological civilization that was affecting many cultures across the earth um, for perhaps hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I mean, like, we can get into Sitchin a little bit later because I wanted to stay on Mars because I, I, but I think it's important to bring up Sitchin and like where, where, but um, I, I'm, what I wanted to talk about, I didn't want to forget is um, uh, about the, how AI enhancement tools will show there's strong evidence to sure. proof of artificial structures on Mars. Right. So just to give you a little insight into AI, you know, I use AI on a, on a daily basis for my work purposes. And it's more of a utilitarian device, um, you know, giving it a consciousness and like Skynet and these types of things. I think that's a little far-fetched. So some examples of how AI can help us are simply this, you know, I can train through machine learning AI to go and look at all of the archives from mail and space science systems for the Mars Global Surveyor, uh, and various other projects where they've uploaded thousands of these images. And in, in the past, I have to hand go through these as other researchers and look for stuff. So now we have the capability to download large sets of data and train it to say, look for faces and pyramids or structures that look like this or that, and give it a whole data set to learn from and then turn it loose on literally hundreds of thousands of images and, and give me the hits directly to say, oh, go look at these, right? So let me give you a deeper example. If you take this data set further back into what we did with the moon, you know, when they when they first released all these images of, the, of us going to the moon, um, you know, you can see literally smudge marks and really bad cropping and duplication of one area to others. And a computer can instantly recognize this today and say, oh, these are human manipulated areas. Hi. <laughs> right. So that's easily, awesome. It is. And so it shows you very quickly that they've been obfuscating the data for a very long time. So even to this day, you know, AI can still go through the archives and find stuff and identify things. So I got to say, so basically you're saying AI can catch NASA on its bullshit. It can, it can in the sense, but it can also, it can also weed through the haystack and find the needles of evidence, right? So that's how I talk about AIs. We want to use AI to scrub the surface, even live data as we get it when we go there, to look for things and not by like manually someone like looking for things, which I want to do too, using, you know, drones and such. But we can look at a complete data set using AI much faster and identify areas where we need to hone in on and, uh, you know, investigate further. When you think about Mars, do you think that, that this is like, uh, like, like they're, that they're, that, that, that these are remark these, anything that might be showing up, would that be something of a, of a breakaway civilization possibly if you had to speculate or does this show more 
uh, of an of an ancient civilization that once was and no longer is? That's a complicated answer. I mean, from my holistic ufological point of view of understanding ufology for the last you know 50 years or 75 years of data that we have there's two things going on one is yes there's probably already an advanced civilization on the moon on mars maybe even more than one there's clear evidence that they've been occupying the moon so they're doing something there um and you know as far as our part going to mars you know i think it's it's a, it would be a groundbreaking thing for us to be able to return to Mars. More than likely, when we landed a man on the moon in 1969, we didn't stop. It just became a black project, more towards militarization of space. Um, another topic we can discuss briefly. But, you know, so I believe that if we go to Mars, it's, you know, it, it'll be interesting to navigate how they've obfuscated what's really going on there and hidden a secret space program from the public from you know for so long so 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 you are a you are a you are a proponent for the secret i didn't know where you stood on that like and, and you said that they might have militarized space like i i, I agree i think i mean because I, I i think there's a lot more going on than we know you know i just don't know how much you know because there's like there's all these talks of the 20 and back people and i i'm not i'm not denying them at all i still have them on my show i have all of them on my show but it's like it's just like I don't know what what's true and what's not because that's a story, you know what I mean? But like we know for a fact that the government might have a TR3B craft. We know that you know I know that's like UFO war, but I think there's actually some proof behind that too. I, I can't I, I I can't I don't know exactly for sure. And I and we know from Bob Lazar that they might have other craft too and other people as well. I mean, where do you stand on all that? You know, it's just a matter of perspective of looking at the topic. So I, I would say a Twitter answer is like this. The last time the U.S. military, mainly, you know, Air Force, Navy, that sort of thing, released any type of new technology to the public was stealth technology. And you had the F-117 and the B-2 bomber. And that was, you know, kind of a while ago now, right? So we, we've been sitting on a window of waiting in, intent, in anticipation for the release of a trans-atmospheric vehicle, something that basically can leave the atmosphere, go into space, fly around, and come back in and fly around in the atmosphere as well, trans-atmospheric. And there's been rumors of an Aurora, obviously the TR-3B, and other packages that most likely exist. So my answer is simply that, and again, I'm not making this up. It's not my opinion. This is just the ether of knowledge that's out there is that more than likely the missing $10 trillion in U.S. budget that Donald Rumsfeld and others have said is missing is gone into, has gone into black budgets and they can't account for it. Well, the answer most likely to that is an extension of the Navy. And the Navy doesn't build one ship or one plane. They build fleets. The Navy is all about fleets of craft. We have now an extended naval arm in space where we have a fleet in space. And there's been, you know, lots of eyes into this from people who've like hacked into things like Gary McKinnon, people who've worked for these organizations, Lazar and others across the spectrum that have come out and released stuff showing very clearly that like, you know, we've got our hands in a pot that's clearly off planet and it's been going on for some time. I'm beyond pointing the finger 
though and saying it's a cover-up these people are lying this that i'm more interested in saying well how do we evolve around this information seeing that it's changing in today's world that it's no longer a cover-up it's actually like open access companies own this technology not our governments anti-gravitic technology stargate stuff who knows they're they're owned by private corporations and they're leased globally to world governments don't understand that yet but i would say that it's a it's a new world that that civilians now work on reverse engineering alien technology you can get clearances and have classified access through organizations that are working on these sort of things and it's it blows my mind that is more intriguing to me than saying oh it's a cover-up and for this reason or that reason of course there's reasons you know and you know everything comes out in the wash so i, I would hope in the long run the gradual release and somewhat obfuscation that they've always done even till now with ufos are now uaps and look over here while we release this task force and that task force and never tell you anything we've been doing it since project blue book waving our hands to distract you i, I just think it's an interesting new game now it's not about so the, things have changed. There's new variables on the table towards like a disclosure. So who knows? If if we have militarized space, like, do you think it's been done as a world thing? Like, you know, we the people of the Earth are now up. Or do you think it's more like a United States thing? You know, like Michael Sala talks about. He said China had the he called it the Red Dragon, their secret space program, and supposedly we have a secret space program. Do you think it would be some if 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 this if this world existed? I'm just saying if, and that's a big if because we don't know. But do you think it would be more of like a we are the world thing, or do you think it's the first country trying to militarize space to get the upper hand advantage on the other country? Yeah, that's an esoteric question. I appreciate that. I'd say that in my view, it's it's definitely like united nations of space access right key countries are involved and have been for a long time and we can see evidence of this going back you know into the 80s um, the whole nuclear threat from russia could have been staged completely behind the scenes we have gorbachev and reagan discussing greater topics like a star wars program and the initiative of this star wars program which reagan did create even back then, were these systems that held the ability for shooting down things in our airspace. Star Wars system was never pointed at Earth, though. It's always pointed out at, out at something else. And even in the Reagan archives, he talks about bragging how when he was given a tour of our space capabilities, not NASA, it's NASA maybe, the secret NASA, it's NASA, yeah, uh, he was amazed. And this is in the archives. You can go look this up, that they were able to orbit 300 people around, you know, around the moon and things like that. And it's like, well, the shuttle only holds like four people or six people or something. And we only had like four shuttles. What do we do with 300? Um, yeah, larger craft that you don't talk about, right? So something's been going on for a long time. If you look for the needles in the haystack, which pinpoint a larger cooperation and an initiative to be in space where most likely, yeah, we have ships, platforms. I've heard about things in Jupiter's moons in that area, Saturn's rings, moon, Mars. You know, so this is what I wonder about as we approach going into space with 
with humans through SpaceX and stuff returning to the moon permanently and to Mars within the next five to 10 years. How are they going to, I mean, that part of this, I really wonder uh, if the cover up is going to be exponentially like a quickening so that like when we're out there, they're not like, oh yeah, these spaceships and things are not a big deal. We know about them. You know what, Jason? I was just thinking they 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 took the cover up so far that they've actually had the 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 rocket program, you know, in in front of everybody, in you know, and then this these other black projects behind the scenes. Like, is I mean, do you think they did that to advance our space race, or or I mean, like it's it's so it's such a complicated thing, right? Like you would almost think, well, why would they do this? But I guess to keep you know, free energy and anti-gravity away from the public, I guess. Cause somebody said to me once, they said, if you had free energy, like what would a terrorist do with free energy? And that's, that's yeah. a good point, but I don't know. I, I mean, it's so, it's such a complicated. It's a great question, you know, and I also think it would be, it would disrupt the fueling of a war machine that we've had for so long with fuel and, you know, our partners with getting oil and stuff, but you know, things are changing for sure. It's, um, it, you know, it's an interesting climate of seeing where we're going. Um, I do think it's interesting that the aliens or whoever it is, higher intelligence has done quite a bit of restraint in not intervening. Uh, we've, we've had quite a bit of activity of things recently flying over our airspace and that sort that are balloons and what have you. But if you go back into the, the record of ufology, you'll see that for quite some time, there's been objects flying over sensitive military sites, uh, even missile silos and disable, disabling them independently. So from that standpoint, I'd be like, well, one, it's probably not anyone that's a different country. It's something else that's going on there. And again, if they wanted to harm us, they'd be like, you know, or something. So I don't, I don't know how to explain that other than they're close. They're, they're clearly like just nudging us. Is this higher intelligence is to just make the right decisions for ourselves and learn on those lines. Again, if you dig into the, the pot of ufology, there's gems in there. One of them is a book called the day after Roswell written by Colonel yes. Corso, Philip Corso, you know, Philip Corso. Now he's passed away and on his deathbed, he released a lot of information, you know, and in this book, he talks about like, I was hired to reverse engineer German technology and various other things along with that were his findings with Roswell and other craft and the Roswell people think it's a spaceship the way he describes it in his book it's more like a dimensional time machine and they found all kinds of things like fiber optics night vision time travel um even velcro, velcro. velcro. yeah i mean you know some some game changers here and what I understood it to be is that they found a way to trigger this time device and could send it back and, and, and have it be at the point of them rediscovering it over and over. So they would make modifications to their learnings. <laughs> Maybe they Velcroed a bunch of stuff saying, look at this stuff. I mean, whatever it was, they <laughs> make enhancements and send it back so that when they reverse engineered it, the next time they could do it faster. So you got to even just imagine where that type of technology might have gone. And in shows like Under Cheyenne Mountain having a Stargate, um, you never know, right? So I, I would say that the, the envelope here is very wide as far as 
the type of technology that we might have access to and the things that, you know, that might be going on behind the scenes uh, from the public eye. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. Um, I, that just made me think of, uh, I remember when they, when Art Bell, I was a big fan of Art Bell. And, uh, and I remember when he did his interview on Art Bell for the first time with, uh, I think Linda Mullen Howe was on there. That was a fascinating interview. And, and I, I 100% believe them. And, and then that, that prompted me to go get the book. But what I was going to say to kind of transition into a different topic was I also remember your interview on Art Bell. It was 2013 um, uh, when he had the show on Sirius XM. Um, That's right. right. And, and you talked about the lost cycle of time, which is I, I kind of wanted to make a note to talk about that. Can you tell the audience like about the lost cycle of time and like what your theory on what it is? I appreciate the OG reference to the Art Bell show as a segue into the topic. <laughs> Uh, quickly on that, yeah, I was a fan of Art Bell for a long time. He was one of the, you know, gateways into this topic to listen to at night and follow along before there was the internet. I remember I, I met him and Richard Hoagland in Encinitas, California, close to where I live here in San Diego, at a book signing. And I'd never met them. I was still more or less a fan, not like at a colleague level. And I... <laughs> I came with this like color printout, like book about Cydonia. And I was like, you guys are awesome, man, here. And I remember him like taking it, you know, other people, <laughs> he took it and he was like, yeah. And like gave it to his wife and then his wife gave it to his daughter and it was like a keeper. I was like, okay, okay, cool. But I have <laughs> deep, respect, deep respect for the work that he did and Richard Hoagland, you know, I'm still, he's still a voice uh, in the game, but uh, yeah, this, Information goes back, uh, you know, uh, a long, long before uh, we were having Art Bell and he was, you know, deeply missed. Um, yes. And in my interview, as a nice segue there, one of the topics that touches on Sitchin, Planet X, Nibiru, that's kind of evolved uh, in my research line is, you know, when we search for a Planet X or a Nibiru, this is kind of how it started for me, is understanding, well, it's reportedly a, a planet that goes around our sun once every 3,600 years. That's a very elliptical orbit. So understanding what would cause it to have that type of an orbit, the dynamics of what it might come across in that orbit, going way out there and passes through something called the Oort cloud, a secondary asteroid belt that we have, could be dislodging debris and other things that come towards the inner part of the solar system whacking us periodically over thousands and millions of years. If you look at all the planets, they've got potholes everywhere, possibly what whacked the dinosaurs and took us out. Uh, you know, so there's a whole explanation of things happening at another level. And so one of the things, you know, that intrigued me was from the Anunnaki level is in looking at that information about the Anunnaki and their lifespans, you know, the crossover between Sumerian information into Akkadian, Hebrew, Old Testament, English, New Kings, James Version, you can see a lot of parallels, but some of these go rather deep and you have to, you know, you have to dig for the, uh, for the connective tissue. So uh, reaching here, but let me give you an example of where I'm going with some of this cycle of time. Noah and some of these other key characters, Noah is an example. We know that his lifespan was over 900 years. What's up with that? You know, we're not, we're living less than a hundred years. I'm probably going to live more than that. But we'll see. 
you know, that's a very long lifespan over 900 years. And if you go back into the Sumerian kings lists, you'll see that some of these people lived even thousands of years, you know, so it makes you wonder, how is that possible? Well, one, if you look at the orbital dynamics of just our Earth going around the sun, that is a cycle, which I'll touch on on the last lost cycle of time perspective. But from the Sitchin perspective, if you think about the Earth going around the sun, it takes 365 days to complete one solar orbit. Nibiru, one solar orbit for us is 3,600 of our years, okay? Because one orbit of our sun, theoretically, takes 3,600 years to complete. So that's one solar year, meaning if I'm here on Earth and I go to Nibiru and I spend one year on Nibiru vacationing and come back to Earth, it's been 3,600 years here. Got to let that oh sink in. Oh, I never knew that. That's right. So that's why they... Yeah, that's the whole idea of longer lifespan. Now, if you think about someone like Jesus or some of these key characters that have a resurrection and are gone for thousands of years, in their time span, it might have just been months or a year, depending where they went, right? So there's a deeper topic here that for me, I started to try and understand. And in looking into it further... There is one key word today that drives the lost cycle of time. Over 30 ancient cultures used our sky as a large celestial clock. Today we call it the 12 houses of the zodiac. We've divided the heavens into 12 constellations. And every 2,000 years, we're pointing at a new, north, a new north star, a new constellation. Now, just recently, we've, we've always been pointing towards the age of Pisces. Right. And just around 2012, like the Mayan calendar ending, it's just an age ending, not time. We crossed over from the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. So what I'm getting at here is that over 30 cultures used a larger cycle of time, which we now call precession of the equinox. And it's this technical term where they're using all of these variables with the moon and our orbit and Every 72 years, it degrades until we're, it's, it's, it's so messed up. There's a whole other way to look at this, which introduces a new model. But the brain, again, has to wrap around it a little bit. But it goes pretty, pretty complex here. So one, most solar systems that we've been imaging are binary, meaning they have two or more suns, a binary system. It's very good reason, and even historically, looking at some of the evidence they've left us is that we also are a binary system. We have two suns. Also, something like a planet X. Yeah, if it goes way out there, it's looping around our second sun, coming back. But we're talking about some very interesting solar system dynamics. If we're a binary solar system, that means that our sun is in orbit around another sun. Okay? That's a binary solar system. And again, some of them are so complex, they have three, four um, look at uh, the Chronicles of Riddick or Pitch Black or some of these shows, Stargate. Well, they'll show you solar systems where there's many suns, more than two. Freaking Star Wars, you know. Uh, yeah. My point, is, my point is, is that it's it's in our literature already for us to understand the binary model. But here's the kicker, folks. If we're a binary system, that means our sun, as it's orbiting another sun, well all our planets are still moving around the sun and we're going along for the ride. It means we're three-dimensionally moving through space if our sun is in a binary orbit. 
And that's what's changing our perspective and causing precession. Most people, if you think of your solar system in your head, you see the sun and little planets spinning around. No, the sun is actually moving as well. So that changes our model. And with that basis, there's a whole unlocking of information here. Again, over 30 ancient cultures talk about this and say that there's a lost cycle of time, which maps to the cycle of this orbit of, of two suns. When the suns are at their farthest point, we're in what's called the dark ages. When the suns are at their closest point in their orbit, we're in something called the golden age. Now, we've always heard these terms. It's not linear, though. It's not like the dark ages were back then and we're headed towards the golden age. It's, it's cyclical. So I'll stop there and pause, but this is unlocking a new set of knowledge for me, which pinpoints the rise and fall of civilizations across time here on Earth. Well, 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 yeah, I got a couple of questions. Like, how? Why is it that we never see our second sun? And or and then like, um, but why is it the rise and fall of civilizations? Is it because when we go into a dark age, is there more cataclysms or? If those two questions, sorry, I didn't want to ask two questions, but it's really interesting. I'll do my best to answer. No, there's a lot of data here. You know, 24,000 years is a long time. It's hard for us to grok that cycle. You know, there's an insect called a mayfly and its whole life cycle on earth, birth to death, 24 hours, 24 hours for a mayfly. So if a mayfly (laughs) comes along and it's sitting on a leaf, another mayfly comes up, and it's a cloudy, windless day. He's like, you know, I've heard about this stuff called sunshine and wind, but I don't see it. They both pass away never experiencing it. That does not mean that sunshine and wind don't exist. They haven't been here long enough to understand. We have the same problem with our understanding of time and and trying to understand 24,000 years as a cycle. But let me give you this as a model to understand that it does affect us. And the ancients somehow knew this and tracked whether or not they were going into the golden age to prepare or coming out of it and descending and also prepare. Look at these cycles. There's three of them that affect us. Cycle one, earth is spinning on its axis. Now you don't think about it, but because of that, we have nighttime and daytime, 12 hours a day, 12 hours a night. What happens when it gets nighttime? Every creature with consciousness across the planet, even plants, sleepy time, Literally, subconscious takes over. You go into a dream state. Why does that happen? Solar system motion is causing that effect. Okay? Cycle two, Earth is going around the sun. Now, we don't think about it much, but because of that solar system motion, we literally have seasons change, right? Time, you know, temperature differences, animals migrating, plants and new things dying and growing all of this because because of of a solar cycle of us going around the sun kicker here they say there's a third cycle and this one affects the rise and fall of consciousness which is precession this twenty-four thousand year cycle so we're just now we're still trying to unlock this right and this knowledge the best way i can explain it to you all the great ancients that we have now sumerian uh hindu Aztec, Mayan, around the globe, all of them have pieces of architectural, mathematical, and astronomical knowledge that we can't explain. Because someone, let's call them the Anunnaki, globally after the great deluge shows up 
and says, hey, guys, why don't you uh, do some stuff like this and learn how to do this? And so that's why you see cultures like the Sumerians with coming over 100 of the first. But you can see there's evidence going back much further of this seeding of knowledge. Uh, and every great culture has a piece of it. And that culture, whoever they were, they could probably give us a better picture into this lost cycle of time. And so there's a two-part research going in here is to understand this lost race of technological giants, whoever they were, and also unlock this knowledge of all the ancient cultures and their obsession with tracking this system of time. That's fascinating. So to, to, to transition, like, who do you think the Anunnaki were? I mean, I, I, a lot of people online have been real critical of Sitchin's, you know, translations lately. And, and I, I don't, I, I'm not, I, I think he was a pioneer. You know, I, I, he obviously couldn't get everything right, right? I mean, I don't think anybody does. Like, so I don't think he should be, you know, put down for that, you know, but, but, um, I, I don't think anybody, nobody, if it wasn't for Zachariah Sitchin, a lot of us wouldn't even be thinking in these realms. You know what I mean? So obviously other more new people are going to come along with new theories and stuff like that. That's just the way life goes. Right. I mean, but what are your thoughts on all that and who the Anunnaki really were and stuff? Two, two pieces there. So as far as who are these people who are the Anunnaki or this lost race, that we're trying to search for. That's question one, and I'll come back to that. Um, you know, the attacking Sitchin, there's a website out there, Sitchin is wrong. Uh, there's also sitchinisright.com. You can go check that out as well. <laughs> you know, basically after Sitchin's death, there are um, religious zealots, people who are very much grounded in Christianity, um, which is fine, even though we've already passed the age of Pisces and we're now in the age of Aquarius, which is how it is that are still holding on to that traditional knowledge of, you know, Jesus's uh, influence, which again, upholding the veracity of the Bible is what we do by looking at the Sumerian legacy of information is to uphold the biblical veracity. Unfortunately, a lot of these people want to stick to the more traditional views, academic mainstream views of translations, which really don't lead to anything. They're very siloed in their information. And when you step out of that viewpoint and take a global perspective of how many cultures have this influence, either through written or visuals, you can see a much clearer ancient astronaut, you know, a cargo cult. They were influenced by something and they went to great lengths to record what they were seeing. It's been happening for a long time. So, you know, to the skeptics, once Stitchin passed away, they just took over saying, well, look, all his translations don't add up to any of the mainstream ones. He's totally wrong. He's wrong about the Anunnaki. He's wrong about Nibiru. He's wrong about the seven sisters of Pleiades, meaning actually Earth. To your point, yes, maybe he has made some uh, discrepancies. But the point is, is the overall base of knowledge he left us. He did 50 years, five zero, 50 years of research and wrote a series of 10 books, Earth Chronicles, that, you know, is hands-on going to these sites and locations. So, yeah, there's going to be new voices that come in, but they're going to have to hold up to a pretty, you know, uh, deep-rooted, scrutinized base of evidence that Stitchin still has. And if you combine that with Eric Von Daniken, Eric Von Daniken's got the visual evidence and locations. Stitchin's got the 
you know, the linguistic knowledge of, of actual translations. And together, they form the hardened basis for the ancient astronaut theory. So unfortunately, the skeptics are always going to have problems with that. But, you know, eventually when this becomes a more open topic and we see that it's been going on for a long time, you know, the told you so type thing is um, it's it happened a lot, even with seeing UAP in the news and such. So uh, that was my long winded answer about the Anunnaki. Uh, but the, to answer first one, uh, part one of that, you know, episodes on Netflix right now, like Graham, Graham Hancock's special, uh, not Knowledge Apocalypse, which is my book, Ancient Apocalypse. Uh, you know, it's an eight hour special that he put together. And it's the same line of evidence. I think that a lot of us are chewing on is that there's some lost race of technological people, good evidence to show a lot of these archeological sites around throughout the Northwest uh, Indian burial sites have these large seven feet, seven feet uh, women that are seven feet, people that are even larger, um, many of them found. So it, it raises a question if there wasn't some type of a lost race of giants or something, uh, we're still trying to understand who they were and where they came from. But I think the term Anunnaki could encompass this group just as easily. Do you, do you think that the elongated skulls of Paracas and uh, other places where they found them, do you think that, that might tie, tie into this phenomenon at all? You know, we found a lot of interesting things, let's say, in the Sumerian archives of the Ejiji, these helpers of the Anunnaki. Um, many of them look very much like androids or small robotic type beings, also very much like gray aliens small, large heads, bulbous eyes. And if these are androids, then, you know, it just makes me wonder about like what kind of involvement they would still have today. Um, so I, I think oh from some, God. yeah, from some perspective, I think that if the Anunnaki literally did have anything involved in our, you know, creation, as the Bible would say, creating us in their image and after their likeness, it's also very likely they would have helpers like these beings that a lot of the abduction experiences seem to parallel. They're always interested in reproductive or genetic um, things. It's almost like a doctor's checkup, perhaps being reported to something else. You know what? I've never really thought, I mean, I thought that the grays could be uh, like a higher, or I mean, like kind of like the hired help for like another alien race, but I never kind of put it together that it would be the Anunnaki, but that only makes sense. That make that makes perfect sense. Like, you know, because especially when you add the, the DNA stuff into it, it's, it's, I've always wondered why are they always taking, why are they always trying to create a hybrid race? And if you think about it, if the Anunnaki are really from so far away, it would only be right that they would send out like, drones or, or, you know, to like see what's going on on earth. Like, I mean, did you ever see Billy Carson's black Knight satellite documentary that there's some kind of satellite watching us? I, I did. And I was just reading for an, another show called the proof is out there uh, for a future episode talking about the black Knight satellite. And, you know, it's an interesting piece that was filmed by an astronaut uh, STS 52 or something. I can't remember the moment, but um, it clearly looks like some type of technology in our upper atmosphere, either extraterrestrial or possibly part of, you know, this space program, this SNASA that we were talking about earlier. Oh, I never thought about that. Yeah, that, that it could be a part of the, 
the secret space. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and my last question for you is if you want to talk about your book, um, the knowledge apocalypse, um, that I, I thought that'd be an interesting topic as well. I appreciate that. Um, just to plug the book a little bit, it's it, nothing there other than the path that I've taken to unlock kind of where I am in my research. Um, and so I just, in the book go over many of the things we've talked about tonight, the Mars data, the lost cycle of time, the Anunnaki, uh, and just kind of, you know, keeping everyone up to speed in a kind of cliff notes version. If you've never been introduced to these topics, I'd say the main thing of interest, uh, you know, where I end the book is what we first talked about is Mars. We are headed back to Mars via SpaceX in the next I don't know, let's say three to four years, if everything stays on track, that will be huge to go to Mars with people and actually have, you know, foot to earth, be able to confirm a lot of these things that we've seen. Um, here's the problem, you know, is as we mentioned earlier with obfuscation of data, ever since even, this, you know, the moon footage, the face and pyramids, they have been not shown to be like what they originally were in some of these earlier shots. So over time, the data is being obfuscated. I don't know if they're bombarding the surface of some of these structures, or again, they're just um, you know, changing what's there uh, to mislead us. So sending people there is gonna really have some new eye-opening experiences around you know, astro-archeology, span if you will. Yeah, I mean, but do you think they, I mean, what, what, do you, do you know like what their plans are? Like how many people do they plan on sending there? Like right off the bat? Like, and, and do you think Elon will be truthful about us? Or do you think that he will become a part of what's the cover up? Like, that's an interesting question. I never thought about that. Like, um, what do you, what do you think? Well, there's already been lots of interaction with SpaceX launches of things flying around the rockets, um, sometimes interfering with rockets. What that could be, again, it, it you know it relates to the overall UAP question that's being put into place now. Um, UAPs, I don't think, are a term that is uh, meant to talk about aliens. It's basically foreign technology when I hear UAP. UFOs is something else. They've been buzzing around our things for, you know, our craft and such for a long time. So I, too, am curious to understand if we send public missions there, on a continuous basis. You can't just read everybody into a secret program. Um, and I don't think that he can hide the evidence if they start streaming things live and what have you, unless they rely on the old tricks that they always have, which is, oh, I'm sorry, someone leaned on their console and we lost the stream. You know, that's not gonna hold up anymore. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit more advantageous to say that the game is changing we're finally getting access to space, I think, within our lifetime, which which just changes the, you know, the set of variables for experiencing the phenomenon that we know has been going on. And I would leave a, a couple last things here, too. You know, I own a set of night vision goggles, which I just happen to have right here. Oh, that's cool. Back on camera. Well, I show them to, to, to point out, you know, these are third generation military grade night vision goggles. And when you go out at the night, when you go out at the night sky and look at what's up there um, with a naked eye, you know, you see one thing, but when you use some of the emerging technologies like night vision and LIDAR and some of this, especially just looking at the night sky, there's a whole bunch of stuff 
that's been going on for a long time, but it's just being hidden from our view. It's it's running in the spectrum of light that's not visible to the human eye. So, you know, you can visualize this in movies like in Marvel uh, Avengers, where they make the the aircraft carrier disappear, right? And these types of things. Most likely that technology has existed for some time, but there is still access to viewing these things if you have the right tools. So I'd say that also is going to introduce a next, over the next few years, people are going to have tools and such that are going to give us more access using AI to quickly detect and see things that are, you know, maybe not visible to the human eye. That's fascinating. That really is. Um, I forgot to ask you about this. This is a, well, this is important. The, the nice woman who set this interview up is Maria. She's the organizer for Contact in the Desert, which you'll be speaking at. Um, I wanted to ask you if you wanted to talk about real quickly like what you'll be talking about on your lecture at Contact in the Desert. I believe that's June 2nd. I believe so. Uh, I think it's the 2nd through the 4th. I'd have to confirm. But anyone can just go to contactinthedesert.com. And, yes, thank you. The interview today was uh, to promote contact in the desert as we get carried away talking about the topics. Uh, I would definitely encourage everyone to go to contact in the desert. I even mentioned Graham Hancock earlier on his Netflix special. He will be there at contact in the desert. Um, there will be many, um, you know, good speakers presenting their work. So if you really want to dive deep in some of these topics for a weekend, contact in the desert is a great place to network, make new friends and, and, and hear about some very interesting topics. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, do you do you want to tell everybody where they can find you and uh, and thank you for doing this? This was amazing. It's my pleasure, and the uh, best place to stay up to date with what I'm doing is just you can either go to jasonmartel.com, uh, otherwise the other URL. There was some mention in the beginning. Um, the best ones, jasonmartel.com. Otherwise, it's ancientastronauts.com. That's awesome. Well, it was really nice meeting you, and uh, and uh, yeah, thank you for doing this.